0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sports Zoo. My name is Jacob Nydick, live here with my co host, Zach Zafran, on KZSU 90.1 FM, the Stanford Student Radio. We are here in the middle of week nine on the farm. Finals are getting ready to begin. Pac 12 basketball tournaments are in full swing. Baseball and softball are kicking off their series. Over and over again in the past few weeks, and we are here to break it all down. Again, this is KZSU ninety point one FM. Here with Jacob Nidek and Zach Safran. Zach, give us a quick recap of your sports week this past week. What were you watching, listening, reading, etc.?
1: Jacob, I-, I like to keep it, you know, keep it real. Week nine is. Really taking a toll on me, man. I have not been able to keep up with as many sports, much less Stanford sports, as I'd like. But doing my best to stay up to date. There was a whole lot of exciting things this last week. I mean, all across the board. You've got swimming and diving in the Pac-12 championships, beach volleyball kicking off their season, baseball continuing to make waves atop the standings same goes for softball you've got squash you've got tennis oh man and of course i'm i'm a basketball fan at heart um a troublesome almost and definitely heartbreaking loss on the women's side but i'm excited to see what happens with the men starting tomorrow um so it's it's chaotic it's fun. It's wild. It's tedious, but I'm here for it.
0: Absolutely. And for those of you listeners out there that maybe are tuning in from not just the Bay Area, but across the rest of the U.S. or even the world, Stanford is home to one of the most decorated and largest athletic programs in the entire country, home of 36 different varsity teams. And really, most of them, if not all of them, compete. At an extremely high level, the Director's Cup, something Stanford is regularly competing in. So when Zach says that the school year is getting to him a little bit, that probably means he's only keeping up with 34 instead of the normal (laughs) 36 teams, not to mention the NBA. And that's kind of what I wanted to start with something not necessarily directly on the court related, but off the court. You know, in the past few weeks, we've talked a lot of Stanford basketball. We've talked more recently in the NBA, and what bigger news than Ja Morant and all the off-the-field issues, or I should say off-the-court issues that he's had. Zach, why don't you give us a quick recap and then jump into kind of what this means for really one of the biggest and brightest future stars of the
1: NBA. Well, you know, without getting too in the weeds here, John Morant suspended by the Memphis Grizzlies for quote unquote, at least two games after a series of, I guess uncoverings you'd call it, but it really all culminated in an Instagram live video in which he was seen doing something that he should not have. So he stepped away from the Grizzlies. There was also um, instances and reports in which he was involved in some altercations, it's it's sad you know it's sad to see John Morant I think I had him as one of my top young talents in the league um because what he does on the court is so incredible but off the court that all eyes are on you especially in the NBA and that holds true more than ever in today's era and John Morant is seeing the that is certainly the case. It's it's hard to see because the NBA, what makes it so wonderful, Jacob, is the fact that you can be so inspirational for not only your home city and your fan base, but supporters of the league, supporters of the sport, something that extends beyond the scope of even just the United States, but the league has you know, extended its bounds to China, to India, to Africa, and the NBA needs leaders to reflect that. John Morant, I have no doubt in my mind that he'll turn things around, but at this juncture, you know, he finds himself at a time where he needs to reflect, taking that time away and hopefully uh, you know, get his off-court actions in line.
0: No, absolutely. And so, you know, John Morant, someone who grew up in South Carolina, attended Murray State, second overall pick in the 2019 draft, already has some really noteworthy accolades, two-time NBA All-Star, second-team All-NBA, NBA Rookie of the Year, NBA Most Improved, not to mention he's only 23 years old. As someone sitting in the studio who turns 23 next month, it's ridiculous how much not just fame and attention he has, but really just the lifestyle that he lives. And many of the people in his life seem to be rather than you know, uplifting him and ensuring that he's making quality choices, really be people that are potentially bringing him down. You see various of his friends, associates, whatever he refers to them as, getting kicked out of arenas, arguing with players, doing who knows what with lasers on other team buses. And so to me, it really starts with the people around him, but... Do you think it's solely a factor of those around him? Is it the money? Is it the fame? Is it something that can be turned around? And if it is, what do you think he needs to do?
1: Yeah, I think it absolutely can be turned around. Taking time away from the team will help him reflect, understand you know, where his priorities and values are at. He's released statements that reflect that school of thought, at least, if it holds true. Um you know, we could see a John Morant who is hyper-focused on the product on the court. I mean, this year alone, he was putting together an MVP-worthy campaign. Almost 28 points per game. Over 49% from the field. 35% from three. All career bests. And you don't want to see it be derailed. I mean, a lot of comparisons I've heard compare uh, are drawn to Gilbert Arenas... You know, Agent Zero, one of the stars and and really personalities that defined the NBA in the early two thousands. But off the court incidents led to his derail. He was averaging twenty nine point three points per game at the peak of his career. Then it all I don't want to say went to waste, but I mean it really did get thrown away because of off the court stuff. If John Morant can one figure out where his priorities lie too look at history, see what happens when off the court incidents get in the way. I'd like to say that we see another MVP candidate return to the court sooner rather than later. Yeah, no, absolutely.
0: And another player that somewhat resembles what jaw has currently gone through in his first few seasons, Carmelo Anthony, someone who had multiple different off the court issues. I believe he had a DUI, potentially a gun related charge as well. And, you know, there's reports that Adam Silver flew him out and set him down. Or it might have been Silver, it might have been Stern actually. I don't I don't know exactly, but essentially the commissioner set him down and said, You've got all the talent, but we know what you're doing off the court. We know who you're with and we know the path that you're on. We've invested a hundred million dollars into you from the NBA in terms of your salary and the advertising, you've got to turn it around and really he did just that. You look at him now and he's a player that has had so fewer off the court issues in the back half of his career and really turned it around and showed kind of how surrounding yourself with the right people with both in your circle and in the locker room, how the support of a franchise can make sure that a player with so much potential can reach that So now throwing it back at you, putting you on the spot, Zach, let's say you're the GM or the president, maybe even the owner of the Grizzlies. You have a couple of these off the court incidents. You know, there's some police investigations. You've now suspended him for a period of time. What are you looking at doing to make sure that Jock understands, you know, the gravity of what how he's been acting, but also What are you implementing in terms of trying to get him on the right path? Is it a veteran in the locker room? Is it the coach? Is it, you know, just bringing him some support? What are you doing if you're in charge of the Grizzlies franchise and wanting to make sure that your budding superstar stays on the right track?
1: Yeah, like you said, I mean, it's maybe a product of his circle, but you cannot afford to have that permeate into the team, into the locker room, into the culture of your organization. So number one, what I'm doing is I'm making a statement to both him, the team, the league, the fan base that this is not acceptable behavior. As they have done, suspend him, but make it a punishment that they really feel and kind of have to endure to to understand, okay, I can't be doing this. Have a team meeting. Talk about team culture. Have them issue an apology. Have individual meetings with him. Approach the veterans on the team. Have them talk to him. Make sure he's... You know, on the right track. Continue to check in with him more than periodically. Make it a priority to have these ongoing dialogues with your star player. And I, I, I truly would like to stay optimistic and say, hey, there is uh, a real chance that we get back on track. You know, there is a period for growth, for rejuvenation, for healing. Give it another run, but uh, you know, if something arises, let him know he's on a short leash. There's no messing around.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And this Grizzly team, especially with the fact that we haven't even talked about, they have a real chance to compete for an NBA championship this year, currently sitting at second in the West, right behind the Nuggets. They're currently on a two-game losing streak, six and four in their last ten games. And you look at this roster, and it's one that could really piece together and glue into a future that is so bright in the Western Conference. You've got Desmond Bain, who's complimented Ja. He's only 24 years old, currently averaging 21 points a game. You've got Jaron Jackson Jr., the power forward. He's 23 years old. They've got people that, if they figure out a way to work out the contract side of it, possess all the talent and all the youth to really gel together and become a force for the next 5-10 years. And you would absolutely hate to have the -the off-the-court issues be the reason that this team isn't competing for a championship for the next decade or so.
1: Yeah, the Grizzlies, like you said, second in the conference, but kind of on a landslide. Let's say John Morant does not return to action. Right now, the Grizzlies have the 7th best betting odds, according to FanDuel to win the NBA Finals at plus 1,900. How do the Grizzlies fare with Ja Morant versus without?
0: Yeah, I mean, without, it's a completely different team. Ja is arguably one of the best, if not the best, player in the NBA right now. And for the Grizzlies, he's really everything. He's the ball handler. He's the scorer. He's the distributor. But he also is leading the team in steals And he's averaging around six rebounds a game, which is a very respectable number. So I think he is someone that just does so much, but also brings so many people into the mix. And so the Grizzlies without him, I think, are a completely different team. And especially whenever you look at how deep and how competitive the West is with the Nuggets, the Kings who are, you know, red hot, the Suns who just got KD, The Warriors, who, with a healthy Steph, can beat anyone. I just can't see this team making a run without Jaw, And yet, that all changes with him. Because he has the ability to take over a series, to lead the team, to put them on his back. And, you know, this season, I think the expectations have completely changed for the Grizzlies. We've seen this has been such a young team. And they've really challenged the Warriors, especially for that ownership of the Western Conference and people have wondered, could this be the year that, that they take it all the way? Could this be the year that they challenge Steph, that they challenge the Nuggets, that you know they really make that next step and with jaw, that definitely is possible without, I think it could be a really, really quick postseason exit if they can even hold on to that
1: spot. Hey, I'm, I'm going to throw something at you here, okay? Last year, granted... Last year, completely different season, different NBA landscape. But while he was nursing that knee injury, the Grizzlies, 25 regular season games without John Morant. Do you know what their record was? I have zero clue. 20 and 5. The Grizzlies went 20 and 5 without John Morant. Obviously, look, he's the most talented player on the roster. He's going... To be the defining factor that will lead them the furthest they will go. But is it too far fetched to say that a Grizzlies roster without John Morant isn't all that far off?
0: Yeah, you know, that quite honestly just leaves me scratching my head. That's I I have a hard time wrapping my mind around that. And obviously, you know, that doesn't so much can change from year in to year out, but yeah, I mean, who? Maybe I'm counting out the the other players more than I should. Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson, you know, Stephen Adams, one of the vocal leaders in there. They definitely would have something to say about that. And you know, for the average NBA fan, it's way more fun if Jaw's in there. But a competitive Grizzlies team, the grit they have, the toughness, the swagger that they carry, it's it's fun when they're winning. And so, with or without Jaw, you know, you hope that they're competing and. It would be an incredible story if they somehow were able to overcome his absence if if it develops into a longer-term absence and piece something together. But I don't know. There's a lot of teams in the West right now. and I mean, you look at the Suns and what they've been doing since KD has been integrated. You look at the Mavs, Kyrie and Luka, dropping 40 pieces on the regular. This is a scary, scary conference right now.
1: It is. It is scary. And it, it, it's even scary to think that with the parity in the West, that you have the Bucks, Celtics, Sixers, arguably even the Cavs at the top of the East. I mean, you could say it's a breadth-versus-depth scenario, but just as a basketball fan, I love seeing the parity. I, I truly do not know who will end up on top this year.
0: No, absolutely, and when we're over the halfway mark now, I think we've got just around 15 games or so left to tune in, so... The NBA, right in full effect, the best basketball yet to be played. In college, though, meanwhile, you know, college tournaments starting to wrap up or I guess depending on whether you're watching the women's or the men's, let's start with the women's whose tournament has concluded really in, I think, what many would consider disappointing fashion, especially considering the way the end of that game against UCLA went What do you think went wrong for the Cardinal? And, you know, you would kind of talked about UCLA potentially posing a risk to the Pac-12 tournament championship run. Was it exactly what you expected? Did they weather us a little bit differently? How did that game compare to what you expected?
1: No, you know, I I thought UCLA would be the team of concern, but I didn't think that just because we should be concerned about them meant that we would lose to them. Um, Just like the two regular season games, it was a close three quarter. Stanford kind of holding on to a couple possession lead, but the fourth quarter, the defining factor once again, and it just ultimately boils down to the fourth quarter, 29 points in the final frame, simply unacceptable, especially for a team that has a defensive anchor like Brink, but you know, Kiki Rice scoring 22 points It's because that perimeter play for the Bruins was able to really come out hot without, as we've talked about, Jacob, a, a lockdown perimeter defender on the Cardinal squad.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And the crazier part, for those of you that didn't watch, is that Stanford actually had a huge lead into the second half. Zach touched on that fourth quarter where Stanford really just looked overmatched. They had their score doubled, but we blew a 16 point lead and the craziest thing to me is that even with that we still had a chance to win the game you grab a rebound off a missed free throw and who knows what happens in terms of what you do on the offensive end but I don't know if really anyone could have predicted when Stanford was up by double digits that they would have ended up blowing that lead and especially that they would have given up essentially a 30-point quarter. Given that defense has been the strong point of this team throughout the season, is that quarter providing a blueprint to other teams on what to do? Is it a fluke? And where do we go from here as a team that has national championship hopes that somehow keep getting dimmer and dimmer as the season goes on
1: you gotta have that goldfish mentality forget about it because I'll tell you what I, I mean Stanford at this point there is no room for error can't dwell on the losses like you said national championship aspirations you can't afford to lose in terms of other teams looking at this fourth quarter they'll certainly take a long hard look at it but I don't know if there's too much to look into I mean UCLA shot Over 50%, 7-13 to in the fourth quarter. They were firing on all cylinders. They just had an added element of energy. You could go tell your team to go out there and just play hard, play energetic, but obviously you're going to do that no matter what. On the flip side as well, Stanford, I mean, an abysmal fourth quarter performance, um, like you said, defensively, shooting-wise, it wasn't even all that bad. It was just the lack of energy, the lack of hustle, the lack of crashing the glass. Um, It's a matter of wanting it, fighting hard. This is March. You got to give it your all.
0: No, absolutely. And so the bracket hasn't been released, but I mean, everyone picked a South Carolina versus Stanford National Championship game. South Carolina has undoubtedly lived up to their expectations. They've been the number one team all year. Perfect record, 32-0. and 0. They haven't lost in over an entire calendar year. 366 days to be exact, actually, March 6th. 2022, the last time they lost a game. Stanford, meanwhile, for most of the season, looked as that other heavyweight contender, more recently has dropped in many national writers' polls. Where do you think we fall in terms of seeding? Are we still a one seed? Do you think we slip down to number two? And is there a chance that Stanford can piece it together, find the wins and return to the national championship game?
1: You know, the latest bracketology still has them out of one seed just because of how chaotic the rest of the top of the rankings have been. But there is there is cause for concern. Um, South Carolina, when you go into the tournament undefeated, I mean, it sends a message. Stanford's five losses, again, 28-5, and five, remarkable record, but they've got to come with that heart. Um other teams at the top struggling, but I I can't even act like I know what's going to happen and I'm really happy I don't. It's March, it's madness. Um just speaking of the Pac-12 tournament, I mean number 7th seed Washington State winning it all, who who saw that one coming? I I certainly didn't.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. And the Cougars have been literally out of the picture, out of contention completely irrelevant for the entire year both nationally, but even in the Pac-12 they have not been a team that we've really looked at seriously at all this season and yet what do they do go in travel to Vegas and get the job done and I feel like that's exactly why these games are so crazy because this is the time of the year where any team can piece together two quality halves and win a game everyone is playing every single possession like it matters because it truly does but the way the ball bounces in March doesn't make sense and we're starting to get into that time where those teams that you know have that locker room presence that believe in themselves and can put together something on the hardwood like the washington state team did can win tournaments and you know who knows whether that will translate it all into ncaa tournament if there'll be an upset this year if it'll be south carolina who knows but perfect representation of why basketball in march is so fun
1: gotta love it you gotta love it um on the women's side you've talked about south carolina we've discussed stanford struggles is there a dark horse contender that maybe you're thinking has a real legitimate shot. Obviously, preseason, Stanford versus South Carolina, the, the headlining uh, national championship matchup, perhaps. But are we going to see someone else out there? Yeah, I mean, that's the million-dollar question. But I think
0: teams from the Big Ten are really, really interesting right now. And you have a lot of them high up in the rankings. The team that's standing out to me more than anyone else got to be the Iowa Hawkeyes led by none other than Caitlin Clark. She was absolutely wonderful in the Pac- or not the Pac-12, the uh, Big 10 tournament I should say. In the final, the Big 10 championship game, she dropped a 30-point, 17-assist, 10-rebound game. That is a crazy <laughs> triple-double. And in the other three games, she ended up totaling 74 points, 30 assists and 23 rebounds. The shots she was hitting were absolutely ridiculous, too. And so, when a player of that caliber is playing with the confidence that she is, that's a team to watch out for. Beyond Iowa, you look at someone like Indiana, they're coming in at 27 and three, obviously coming in with, you know, a really, really talented team. Ohio State only has seven losses. They're also getting back guard JC Sheldon, who has been injured for most of the season. So, The fact that these teams are playing against each other beating each other up you know adding in some of those losses seems to sometimes surprise national riders and make some of these teams that might come in as three and four seeds fly under the radar a little bit but whenever you have as players players as talented as you know caitlin clark and these rosters that ohio state has that have been battling against high quality opponents the entire year there definitely is reason to be concerned that the, a Big Ten team could find their way into the tournament and piece together some wins and then take the whole thing out from underneath South Carolina.
1: Dude, 37, 17, and 10. I don't even think I could do that in 2K. Like yeah, I, <laughs> no, it's, it is absolutely crazy. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Um, I, I'm i all about the Caitlin Clark hype. I I love watching her play. It's so, so exciting. Those deep threes I mean, off-balance, coming off pin-downs. It's ridiculous, and I think March is the time at which it's going to be most exciting to see her because it's the biggest stage. And as she's demonstrated, especially in the Big Ten tournament, she steps up in the brightest moments.
0: No, absolutely. Yeah, couldn't agree more. And her season has been phenomenal. I feel like people are just now really starting to see that because she put up so many highlights in the Big Ten tournament. But this whole year, she's been absolutely phenomenal almost averaging a triple-double. She's coming in at 27 points, seven and a half boards, a little over eight assists per game. So she has been getting it done for the Hawkeyes really every single game, but especially as of late.
1: Yeah, that's unreal. Another team I have on my radar, sitting at 28-2, and but only seventh in the most recent power rankings, is LSU. Those two losses... One, yeah, a blowout, but to South Carolina. And the other, their most recent, a stumble to Tennessee, who I think is a respectable opponent. And yes, you don't like to see a tumble in a conference um, tournament, but LSU could really be a team to look out for. I think throughout the year, they were really neck and neck in the conversation with South Carolina and Stanford and UConn um, and have kind of fallen off the radar as of late but that is my i don't even know if it'd be right to call him a dark horse but that that is a team that i'll be having my eyes um definitely set on
0: yeah no absolutely and again perfect example where this is a team that you know it feels weird to call them a dark horse contender but the fact that they have two losses both of them so recently You know, means that they're getting just a little bit less attention. But any team with just two losses and the way that they lost is, in my book, definitely worthy in so many different metrics of competing for a national championship. You look at the depth of this team, you look at some of their wins, and yeah, they didn't have the best non conference schedule. They weren't really tested by many of the teams they played before the SEC regular season but 28 wins and two losses is 28 wins and two losses and you look at some of the games yeah they got blown out by South Carolina but it's it's hard to put a lot of weight in that they're a team that that is definitely one that needs to you know be on people's radars and given the fact that they've kind of trended down similar to Stanford at the end of the year It will be interesting to see if they come in with a little bit of extra fire, a little chip in their step, and find a way to piece together some wins and and make a run. Because once you get through those first couple of rounds, it comes down to a matter of possessions and anything can happen.
1: Yeah, and and the way in which this LSU team plays too is perfect for March. It's so exciting. Fast-paced, thrilled. They had six games in a row early in the season where they broke triple digits I don't know the last time I heard about that in women's college basketball, men's college basketball, any level lower than the NBA. That is surreal. And in most recent bracketology, obviously not official yet, but they're looking at a three seed, which is a bit remarkable. But in that kind of quarter of the bracket, they have a very feasible path to the final four. If they're bunched up with Virginia Tech and Maryland at the one and two seed, I mean, Maryland, and we'll dive into that team in a sec, a talented squad, but I think that LSU could certainly go head to head with them.
0: No, absolutely. And what a story Angel Reese is for LSU transferring from Maryland. She's led the Tigers this year after transferring from Maryland last year. You know, she was the number two ranked player coming out of high school. Decided to stay local in Maryland. She went to high school in Baltimore. Fractured her foot freshman year. Decided to transfer to LSU. And this year has started 30 games. Averaging over 20 points per game. 23.4 to be exact. She can really do it all. And she's 6'3", but moves like a guard. And also is someone that whenever you come into the tournament, when they get that confidence when they start shooting the ball with a little bit of swagger whenever they catch fire is going to be so dangerous to to guard and is someone that can take over a game and propel really any team to a deep run in the
1: tournament yeah and with march just being about storylines being about narratives i'd love to see her get revenge on her former team lsu versus maryland with the taggers on top
0: yeah no absolutely and you know, Maryland, another team that when I was talking about the Big Ten, completely forgot to mention, yet they were in the Big Ten championship game and lost amidst Kaitlin Clark's crazy performance. They still almost won that game. And the thing is, they had beaten Iowa by 30, or I think it was 28 in the week previously. So this Maryland team, again, 25-6, and six, Last game is going to be a loss, but this team has the talent. They have the drive. They have some experience. They can piece together wins and then anything happens. And I feel like a broken record saying that, but there are so many teams at the top that with the right combination of games and players and locker room mentality could find a way to to really stretch out their season and make a really extended run in this Maryland team. Another one that I'd add to the list to really be dangerous—that uh, could really be dangerous coming up.
1: So obviously, a ton of teams out there on the field. We are so far away from that national championship, but Jacob, I guess we could divide it by conference. If you had to choose a conference, who might end up on top? Who might that be?
0: Yeah, you know, I I think the Big Ten is probably the obvious choice, but I would really. Really, not sleep on the Pac 12 because the Pac 12, maybe top to bottom, doesn't necessarily have all the talent of the Big Ten or the number of competitors that have a legitimate shot. But UCLA, Stanford, some of these other teams in the tournament, you know, maybe even Washington State, the way they played in the Pac 12 <laughs> tournament, they could definitely piece together some wins and then. You look at those two conferences and you don't mention the SEC, which has L S U, South Carolina, and others, so it it really could go any direction, but I think if Stanford can find a way to regroup, get back to the basics on defense, find some scoring from, you know, other people other than the big three of Hannah Jump, Haley Jones, and Cameron Brink, they undoubtedly will be competing at least for a berth in the national championship, if not winning at all, but it's gonna have to take, you know, a little bit of work and getting back to the drawing board at what they do best.
1: Absolutely. I think from my eyes, Stanford gonna be the top Pac-12 contender, but the X factor has gotta be Hannah Jump. I mean, 0 for four from the field in thirty-three minutes of play, a z zero ball against UCLA and yet Stanford only came up four points short without contribution from one of its major scorers. If Hannah Jump is on, my bold prediction is that this Stanford team goes further than last year and makes it to the national championship. But that hinges on whether the X factor can show up. And it's not necessarily contingent, or it's not necessarily dependent on her. It's certainly how these other teams' game plan but can Tara Vanderveer and her coaching staff implement a game plan that allow the senior sharpshooter to thrive? I guess that is, as we like to say, the million-dollar question.
0: No, absolutely. But I think that's a great you know, point right there, Zach, because this roster has so many people that can get the job done. And we really saw that against Oregon. I mean... We won that game against Oregon by 11, but you look at who was leading the scoring. Cameron Brink had 22, Hannah Jump 13, Talana Lapolo 10. Haley Jones only had eight points. And so, you know, that doesn't look like a great day, but she had eight assists, 13 rebounds, two blocks. She's someone that obviously one of the most talented players in the entire country, she's going to draw so much attention and it really is going to be on the third fourth maybe even the fifth option and so that i think is what makes stanford so dangerous the combination of having the depth having that fourth and fifth option who can score but also having coach tara at the helm she's been in this experience she's been in this position so many times has so much experience and so i find that i have this overarching confidence that she's going to find a way to make sure that Haley gets her points to find a way to make sure Cameron Brink gets her blocks and her points and finds a way to get Hannah jump her open looks. It's just a matter of whether they go in and it's a matter of whether those those players behind them can find a way to do the little things to box out to move their feet on defense and to really come together because When it comes to game planning, Coach Tara really is one of the best,
1: if not the best right now. 100%. Cannot agree more. Hopefully, Tara Vanderveer takes her squad right where they were in that 2020 season. But that remains to be seen. I know all of you loyal Stanford listeners like Jacob and I are hoping that something happens similarly. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Again, this is the SportsZoo here on KZSU 90.1 Stanford's student radio. My name is Jacob Nadig joined here in studio by my co-host, Zach Zaffron. We've been breaking down some of the biggest and brightest things happening in both professional and women's college basketball. We're going to jump now to the Pac-12 tournament, which obviously holds extreme significance for the Stanford team, given how unlikely a postseason berth is. But before that, a few honors being dished out here on the farm. Spencer Jones, all-Pac-12 team, second year in a row. He's on the second team, which was just announced today. Really, you know, a great career for him. He's someone that I think is really going to be playing with a chip on his shoulder as these could be the last games he ever has in a Stanford jersey they're already in Vegas getting ready to kick off tomorrow I believe. What are we expecting from the Pac-12 tournament here?
1: I mean, the bar is low, but if with Jared Haas at the helm, inevitably you don't know what's going to happen. We had that win over Arizona to really signal that hey, we are here to contend. We stuck it out with UCLA. We we have been competitive on this tail end of the Pac-12 conference slate. So the Pac-12 tournament, really a last-ditch effort to make this season worthwhile. I can't say that I see them winning the Pac-12 tournament, but our first matchup with Utah, if we take it game by game, I mean, this is a squad that we lost to the first time around, beat the second time around at Utah, which is, if you know anything about Pac-12 basketball, incredibly tough To do. It just doesn't get easy after that is the issue. You got to beat Arizona, then you got to beat likely USC, and then you've got to beat likely UCLA. One upset, not too much to ask for. Two in a row, that would be incredible, but three, I might call it more than a miracle, Jacob.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Breaking it down though, one game at a time, starting with Utah, who comes in. Really ice cold. This is a Utah team that has lost, I believe it's five in a row. Yeah, five in a row. They lost to Colorado to end the regular season, but before that, a really ugly, ugly loss to USC. They scored 49 points in that game. Close game against UCLA, but against Arizona State, they dropped that. Against Arizona, they also take the L there. That one, quite ugly, although... Arizona, obviously one of the best teams in the conference. What does it take against this Utah team to make sure that the Cardinal repeat the second matchup and are able to move on at least to live to see another day in this conference? I
1: mean, my favorite saying, man, big time players make big time plays. This is the biggest stage Stanford has been in all year, and they've got to look to Spencer Jones to continue to do what he has been doing. Like you said, all pack second team. I thought he should have been up there on the first team. A, a snub if I have ever seen one, but he's been on a tear. 18 points in his most recent game, 25 before that, 21 before that. He's got to keep the hot hand, but obviously he can't do it all himself. Last time against Utah, we got a ton of production from the other Jones, Michael Jones... 15 points from him and the other michael michael o'connell in 11 points from him i think that we just need two to three guys to step up consistently and the rest will follow but michael jones is an interesting one for sure because of everyone he has that experience that no one else has he's the only guy on this roster that has been to the ncaa tournament has gone deep in march and knows what it takes What kind of role do you see him playing, Jacob, in not only the Pac-12 tournament on the court, but maybe even off the court?
0: Yeah, you know, it's funny that you bring that up because I was about to throw that same question to you. (laughs) Yeah, I think, you know, this is a unique place where Michael Jones really has to step up off the court. And, you know, this team is one that I think has somewhat struggled for leadership at various times and really has struggled with an identity. Spencer Jones, obviously a returner, the best player on this team in most people's opinion, is someone that you look to to score and also lead, but has sometimes been absent at various points when it comes to the locker room presence. Harrison Ingram, obviously one of the highest regarded players on the team, but we've Well, established that he's a much more passive guy, someone that isn't going to get in your face and lead. And so it's kind of trickled down into leadership by committee, which I think really hurts the team. But that is all out the window when it comes to win and survive. And I think that is when Michael Jones really has to step up off the court. I think, you know, it can be somewhat daunting to go from a school like Davidson come into the Stanford program with such different norms around what it means to be a student athlete, what it means in terms of the academic workload, in terms of what it means in so many different ways. And I think now is whenever, you know, the time that he has here on the farm is coming to an end and he has the biggest chance to make an impact. And so what I'm looking for him is, is really calming down some of those guys that you know might get a little nervous or might play with a little bit of jitters because the worst thing would be to get out into a hole early. And we know Stanford loves to get into <laughs> oh. big holes. But I think it's one thing if that happens because you're playing poorly, but it's a completely other thing if you're doing that because of nerves. And so I'm looking for him to be a vocal leader but also to lead by action. I'd love to see him in pregame warmups being one of the people giving high fives, talking people up, making sure that people are playing with confidence because when it comes to tip off and the next 40 minutes after that, his presence is only going to be able to be felt if he's already given people some confidence and shown them that they have the skills to win this game. And so I'm looking for him to be doing lots of work off the court and, The night tonight, in the morning tomorrow, making sure that these players are playing up to their strengths, playing with confidence, and understand that, sure, this is a big moment,
1: but it's not too big of a moment. Absolutely. And thinking of his on the court production, I know we all remember that 31 point performance in the opener. Thought he was going to be the second coming of (laughs) MJ and Michael Jordan to Michael Jones. Um, Of course, not necessarily the case, but he is still, uh, in terms of you know statistics, a stud. Michael Jones, third on the team in scoring. But his leadership, like you said, instrumental specifically to the backcourt. Michael O'Connell has been there now. Issa Silva, he stepped up pretty big, I remember, last year in the Pac-12 tournament against Arizona and Arizona State between those two what needs to get done for Stanford to you know maintain their own style of play against Utah
0: yeah I mean the great thing about both of those players is they're going to be coming off the bench playing with extreme heightened energy I mean Pac-12 tournament emotions are going to be high energy is going to be high they've been in Vegas the city of bright lights they all know what's riding on this game and every game from here and so you get into the arena you're warming up the national anthem happens the players are introduced etc etc these guys are going to be sitting on the bench for you know four five six who knows eight minutes depending on the game plan and those jitters and that energy is just going to build and build and they're going to be itching to make a play more so than really any other game this year and so what I'm looking for those two guys to do is play under control but with a tenacity that really brings a jolt to the other people on the court. Whenever Issa goes in for O'Connell or for whoever he does, I'm looking for him to play with a controllable aggression. I'm looking for Michael Jones to be making cuts, passes, and playing on defense with tons of energy. But most of all, what I'm looking at of these two guys is making sure that they're playing within their role. Michael Jones is, is a scorer and a shooter, second on the team, and made three-pointers behind Spencer Jones. We need him to shoot the ball, shoot the ball well, and shoot it over and over again because scoring is going to be something that we absolutely need from him. So I'm looking for controlled energy playing within their roles from both of those two, and I think coming off the bench, they're going to need to be a spark for other guys, for the starters, and really for the entire atmosphere around this team because when they come off the bench it is going to be in pivotal moments and especially for Michael Jones who does play so much he's going to be on in, in critical moments and we're going to need his shooting to if we want to make a run here.
1: So the men getting started tomorrow night at 6pm Stanford versus Utah let's get an honest score prediction Jacob. What are your thoughts on that first round matchup?
0: I think this is a very winnable game. I think This is a team that, you know, doesn't have a ton of experience in the postseason, as we've touched on, but has a lot of time on campus and has a lot of time together. And I think that is extremely valuable. I think this is a game that could definitely go Stanford's way. And especially whenever you look at some of these past games, thinking 70 to. 63 stanford pulls out a victory i think we we hit the big seven zero hold them into the low 60s i think harrison ingram has a really quiet triple double you know maybe a 12.10 board 10 assist type of night or something really close but i think he leads by just being the calm guy that he he always has been this year and you know most of the year, it drives me nuts how passive he is. But I think <laughs> that calmness, that you know, nonchalantness will serve them well. And so I'm looking for him to to really be a focal point. But I think we, we pull this out and and do it in relatively convincing fashion.
1: It's funny. I'm going to be right up there with you, my prediction. I promise formulated before you said anything. <laughs> uh, I've got Stanford winning uh, 69 to 63.
0: Okay. So right, right there, who will be right? What do you think? It's going to take, you know, on the offensive end for us to to get up that high and, you know, sustain possessions and put the ball into the basket. What are you looking for?
1: Yeah, I mean, like I said, Spencer Jones has got to be the guy. But as you kind of signaled, uh, controlling possession, I think guard play is going to play such an instrumental role, especially with the pressure now that it's playoff time. I'm looking for an assist to turnover ratio of greater than two and a half. Michael O'Connell has been phenomenal all season long at that. Has he been great dealing with pressure? No. The statistics have his back at least. Issa Silva as well. I'd love to see him show that comfort that I know he possesses. Love those Ball is Life mixtapes. I'm ready for him to get an ESPN mixtape after showing at the Pac-12 tournament. Um, But on the note of Harrison Ingram, he showed up big, especially on the back half of their Pac-12 tournament last year. I'd like to see him thrive in Vegas on a big stage, show what he's about. Doesn't have to be scoring-wise, but like you said, a triple-double like stat line. like to see him contribute across the board. I think that's recipe for success tomorrow night.
0: No, absolutely. And I think if Harrison plays his game and plays with authority, other people will take notice and do the same thing. And everyone is playing into their role and playing with confidence as we've seen this team can go on a run and so you know let's look ahead a little bit we both predict a win against Utah which I don't know if that's a good sign or a bad sign for this team (laughs) but they've got the winner of our matchup has Arizona waiting a team that so talented we found a way to beat once let's say we advance and move forward can lightning strike twice
1: Oh man, I just, I really want to say yes. I don't think that they have it. Arizona has just been so good for so long. I mean, their most recent games, they have slipped up a little bit. A nine-point loss to UCLA. Granted, UCLA is now number two in the country, so let's bear that in mind. Um, But a loss at home to Arizona State. I know you saw it, there was that half-court buzzer-beating. Wild shot, yeah. Yeah, it was kind of like a predecessor to what I'm sure is to come in March. Unless Stanford gets those half-court heaves to fall at the end of every single quarter, Yeah, I'm sorry, Arizona's taking that one 81-65. Um, and then, you
0: know, let's, let's say you're wrong, which <laughs> I would absolutely love, and I'm sure you would love as well. We've got either USC, Arizona State, Oregon State. I think a much easier matchup if you I feel like we match up against USC in a really interesting way. Is, is that a winnable game or is that you think we have similar fate if we can somehow rock the boat and piece together two wins is it are we doomed in in that final game on Friday or or what what does it look like from there?
1: No, I think USC is absolutely winnable. Um it it's just that we have to have 40 minutes of consistent play last time um, when we played them in the tail end of the regular season. That was not the case. It was tough, you know, following up UCLA performance, I suppose. Um, but on the topic of USC, you know, I do want to get this out there. This is my hot take. USC wins the Pac-12 tournament. Um, Arizona slipping up as of late. Tight contest with USC on the back end of the uh, conference slate. Up top, UCLA, Not going to see much resistance. I don't know if they'll be battle tested enough. USC, UCLA, a classic rivalry matchup in the finale with USC taking the kick. Of course, all hypothetical, but that is what I have uh, ending up in Vegas.
0: Yeah. And I think there's, you know, you've really polarized our Southern California audience now, Zach, because (laughs) half of them will love us now and half of them are hating us. Big picture, though, I think UCLA definitely a team that many people are actually predicting to potentially make a title run. They're on a 10-game win streak, currently sitting at number two in the rankings. You don't think they'll win the Pac-12 tournament. Do you think that there's a way that they could overcome a loss to USC or someone else in this tournament? Regroup, find a way to string together some wins and win it all for the pac 12 tournament
1: i do i think that ucla is long overdue um for real magic to happen in the tournament you know we we love the storylines we love that fairy tale number 11 seed run but now that they're in the driver's seat i think that they need to make the magic happen the expectations were insurmountable last year but I think that they're on a mission to get it done. I mean, nearly swept the Pac-12 honors this year. They got Cronin at the coach of the year. They've got the player of the year in Jaime Hawkes. They've got the defensive player of the year in Jalen Clark. All eyes are on them, but this time I think it's in their favor. I'd like to say UCLA is a Final Four team for sure. Absolutely, and so
0: obviously we'll dive deeper into both the men and women's brackets Once they're dropped, do a little round-by-round analysis, go through our March Madness picks. But looking at the AP Top 25, you've got Houston at one, followed by UCLA, Kansas, who just lost to my hometown, Horns, at the University of Texas, Alabama, who has had so much controversy surrounding their program, (laughs) Purdue, Marquette, Texas, a lagging Arizona, Gonzaga, and then Baylor rounds out the Top 10 just very briefly because we've only got five minutes uh, or so here left before viewer discretion as advise takes over for us who is a contender and who is a pretender in this ap top 10
1: well in the top 10 I'll, i'll go ahead and list who i really would love to see um and do envision seeing pretty deep in the tournament i've got ucla i've got kansas got alabama I've got Arizona, I've got Gonzaga, and I've got Baylor. That's six of the top ten, which leaves Houston, who got 58 of the 61 first-place votes. It leaves Purdue, and it leaves Marquette and Texas out. Those are my pretenders. I'm just sorry. Houston, uh, a program that I feel like has just come up flat when they get to the Elite Eight historically, of course, Coming with a record in 29-2, and it might be a different story, but they consistently, year in and year out, have a great regular season record. I just don't know if the American Conference is doing them justice. Purdue, I love what they've got going on there. I've just seen them get into too close of a matchup time and time again. I don't know how they'll handle adversity when they're on the wrong side of it. As for Marquette and Texas... I I tread lightly. <laughs> I, you know, I know I've got a longhorns fan to my left. Let's just say I'll give them I want to see them play more. But uh you know, I'm I'm sensing a different sentiment from the other side of the studio, Jacob. <laughs> I are do you have Texas legitimately how far do you have them going?
0: Yeah, you know, the thing about this team is that they're they've been all over the map this year. I think if you would have asked me at the beginning of the year after maybe, you know, 10 games in before everything happened with former head coach Chris Beard, I would have spoken very differently. And and now this team is, you know, really settled in. They have the interim coach and identity. And they also have most recently a 16-point win against number three ranked Kansas. But you look at the games before that, a loss against TCU, a loss against Baylor, a close game against Oklahoma. A loss against Texas Tech. Not really trending in the right way. I think this is a team, though, that has faced a lot of adversary. This year has faced a lot of expectations. And the national media might actually allow them to fly under the radar a little bit. I think depending on how their bracket gets seeded, I don't know if this is a national Title contender, but definitely a team that I wouldn't be super surprised to see in the Sweet 16, the Elite Eight, depending on how that goes, maybe even the Final Four. But you know, anything can happen. That's why March is known for its madness. So it'll be fun nonetheless. And especially once Big 12 tournament happens, Pac 12 tournament happens, we see how these conference tournaments shake up. We'll have a lot more knowledge before the brackets are released, and we can really dive deep into it. With that, we are wrapping up time here. We're going to do the ultra-quick around the farm. Three quick shout-outs to random teams here. Zach, why don't you go ahead and start us off in the last 30 seconds.
1: Shout-out to Stanford Baseball 9-2, and two, continuing to get it done, but specifically Junior Alberto Rios. Unbelievable performance, 11 RBIs. Love the guy, love him as a player. Got to shout him out. My name's been
0: Jacob Neidegg, your co-host of The sportsuit along with Zach we will be uploaded to Spotify and Apple Music in the next 24 hours or so. Be sure to tune in to KZSU for all your listening needs and Stanford sports broadcasting. We'll see you next week, same time. Wear red, stay late, be loud.